Chapter Four, Fairer Than a Fairy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Old Fairy Tales by Laura Valentine. Fairer Than a Fairy. There formerly reigned a king who, having already had several children, took it into his head to travel, accompanied by his queen from one end of his dominions to the other. Accordingly, the royal wanderers went by easy journeys from province to province, making a short stay in each, and after a time arrived at a noble castle situated on the frontiers of their kingdom where the queen gave birth to a daughter. The little princess was so miraculously beautiful, even at the moment of her birth, that the courtiers, for once sincere in their admirations of her charms, called her fairer than a fairy and it will soon be manifest that she will deserve so illustrious a name. As soon as the queen was able to quit her room, she hastened from the castle to join her husband, who had set off in haste some days before to defend a distant province, which was threatened by his enemies. The queen left the little fairer, as we shall call her, with the governess, who brought up her young charge with great care, and, as her father had to sustain a long and cruel war, the princess in retirement had leisure to improve both in mind and person. Her beauty became famous in all the neighboring kingdoms. Nothing else was spoken of, and when she had completed with her twelfth year, she looked more like a goddess than a mere mortal. About this time, one of her brothers left the army to visit her during a truce, and the prince and princess formed an inviolable attachment. Meanwhile, the renown of Pharaoh's beauty, and particularly her name, had so irritated the fairies that they contrived a thousand schemes of vengeance against her to destroy a beauty that caused them so much jealousy. The queen of the fairies in the neighborhood was not one of those good fairies who are the protectresses of virtue and who take a pleasure in doing good. She had, at the end of many centuries, at length attained the honor of royalty by her deep skill and knowledge, but she was very small and on that account was called Dwarfina. Accordingly, Dwarfina assembled her council, and made it known that she was resolved to avenge an affront offered to all the handsome persons at her court, and, indeed, to all the world, adding that she intended to leave her palace for a time, in order to visit and carry off this boasted fairer, who had obtained a reputation so injurious to her charms. No sooner had Dwarfina made known this determination than she hastened to put it into execution, and, having dressed herself in a simple gown, transported herself to the castle in which the object of her journey resided. She soon made herself familiar there, and, by the charms of her conversation, induced the princess's ladies to receive her among them. But Dwarfina was no less astonished than displeased, when, having carefully inspected and examined the castle, she became aware, by means of her art, that it was built by a powerful magician, and that there was attached to it, in its gardens and terraces, such a virtue as made it impossible to use any kind of spell or enchantment against its inmates. Ferrer's governess was not intolerant of the circumstance. Although conscious of the invaluable treasure that had been committed to her charge, she lived, consequently, in perfect security, well knowing that one who can injure her precious pupil so long as she could keep within the castle in its gardens. Accordingly, she had expressly forbidden her to quit the palace, and Ferrer, who was very prudent and obedient, took care not to obey this injunction. Dorfina took great pains to insinuate herself into the princess's good graces. She taught her several fine kinds of needlework, 
she amused her by relating the most amusing stories and neglected nothing that could tend to her delight until she succeeded so well in her design that the princess was soon never seen without the fairy the disguised queen amid all these cares never forgot her revenge but incessantly sought by stratagem to entrap fairer into stepping beyond the castle gates which was all that she wanted to enable her to carry the hated princess off one day they were in the castle garden when dorfina opened a little door and having passed into the fields beyond she performed a thousand antic tricks to amuse the princess and her ladies but all at once pretending to be taken ill she fell as though she swooned the princess's attendants ran to her assistance and fairer herself in her anxiety forgot the cautions she had received and hastened to the spot but scarcely had the unfortunate princess passed the walls of the castle when dorfina arose seized her rudely by the arm and making a circle around them and thick black cloud appeared which having cleared away the earth opened and from the chasm issued two moles with wings of rose leaves drawing an ebony chariot dwarfina seated herself therein pulling the princess after her when the chariot mounted into the air with incredible swiftness and soon disappeared to the young ladies who by their tears and cries made known to everyone in the castle the loss they had sustained the rapidity with which the chariot rushed through the air made fairer so giddy that she became for some time almost insensible at last recovering herself she looked downward what was to her terror when she perceived immediately beneath her the vast extent of the fathomless ocean she uttered a piercing shriek and turned round when seeing her dear dwarfina she threw her arms round the fairy's neck and embraced her tenderly feeling somewhat tranquillized to find someone near her whom she loved but repulsing her rudely the fairy said away impertinent behold in me your mortal enemy i am the queen of the fairies and am now about to take you to suffer for the arrogance of those who dared to give you your presumptuous name fairer trembled when she heard these words as though a thunderbolt had fallen at her feet but was still more frightened at the terrible speed at which they were travelling after a while the chariot descended into the midst of a magnificent quadrangle of the most superb palace ever beheld the sight of so charming a place a little reassured the timid princess especially when on alighting from the chariot she beheld a hundred beautiful young ladies who hastened courteously to welcome the fairy so charming an abode did not seem to threaten misfortune and fairer received consolation which could not fail to soothe any lady in her great distress when she remarked that all the young beauties were struck with an admiration at beholding her and heard a confused murmur of praise and envy of her charms all which naturally pleased her alas how short are all human pleasures especially those arising from vanity Rafina imperiously gave orders to her attendants to strip fairer of her fine clothes expecting thus to deprive her of a portion of her charms this was quickly effected but Dorfina's rage only increased what new beauties disclosed themselves what confusion for all the fairies present they dressed her in rags but her simple and natural beauty triumphed over the costly clothes and jewels which surrounded her and never did she appear more beautiful Dorfina, therefore gave orders for her to be taken away and ordered the tasks which she had allotted to be given to her at once thereupon two fairies laid hold of the princess and obliged her to accompany them through the most sumptuous apartments that were ever seen fairer contemplated them complacently and notwithstanding her present situation she said to herself whatever torments they may prepare for me my heart whispers that i shall not always be miserable in this charming abode 
Presently, they came to a broad black marble staircase of upward of a thousand steps, which the fairies made fairer descend. It was so long that the princess thought she must be going to the abyss under the earth. At last she arrived at a small cell, wainscoted with ebony, where her companions informed her that she must sleep on a little straw which lay in one corner, while in another stood an ounce of bread and a mug of water for her supper. Thence the princess was led into a long gallery, of which the walls, from the ceiling to the floor, were also of black marble, in which were lighted by the feeble rays of five jet lamps, which shed a sombre and most gloomy light, rather calculated to inspire terror than comfort. These sorrowful walls were thickly covered from top to bottom with a complete network of spiders' webs, which had the singular property of multiplying the more they were swept away. The two fairies then told the princess that if she did not cleanse the walls of that gallery by daybreak next morning, she would undergo a most terrible punishment. They finally placed a ladder against the wall, and, putting a cane broom into her hands, desired her to work away, and quitted the gallery. Fairer, unacquainted with the fatality of the spider's webs, although the gallery was very long, heroically resolved to do her best. So, taking the broom, she stepped lightly up the ladder. Alas, alas, what was her astonishment when, endeavoring to clear the marble of the webs, she found that they were only augmented. She wearied herself with exertion, but, finding that it was all in vain, she threw down her broom, descended from the ladder, and, seating herself on the lowest step, burst into tears, lamenting her cruel fate. Her sobs were so deep and so numerous that they quite exhausted her strength, and she was on the point of falling on the marble pavement when her eyes encountered a strong glare of light. The whole length of the gallery became instantly illuminated, and Fairer saw kneeling before her a young man of such handsome features and figure that had it not been for his dress, she would have taken him for Cupid himself. She was doubtful whether all this light did not proceed from the young stranger's eyes, so sparkling and brilliant did they appear to her. The young man continued to regard her attentively without rising. At last, Fairer said to him in astonishment, Who are you, gallant stranger? Are you a god? Are you the god of love? I am not a god, answered the youth, but I have more love in my heart than there is in the whole world besides. I am Piero, son of the queen of fairies, and am in love with you, and come to your assistance. With that, Piero picked up the broom which Fairer had thrown to the floor, and touching the cobwebs with it, they immediately changed into a piece of gold tissue of beautiful workmanship, while the flame of the lamps became strong and bright. Then, presenting to the princess a golden key, You will find, said Piero, a keyhole in the largest panel of the wainscot in your closet, into which this key will fit. Unlock it very gently. Adieu, fair princess. I quit you only to avoid being suspected of having assisted you. Your task is done. You may rest in peace. You will find all that you want in the closet in your prison chamber. Then kneeling before the princess, Piero kissed her hand and quitted the gallery. Fairer, more astonished at this adventure than at any of the previous events of the day, returned to her ebony closet. She was looking for the panel which Piero had specified, when she heard the sweetest voice she had ever listened to, complaining in the most tender and sorrowful accents. The princess fancied that the voice must belong to some unfortunate creature, like herself, placed in confinement to be tortured. She listened, therefore, attentively. Alas, what shall I do? said the voice. 
I am commanded to change this bushel of acorns into an equal quantity of oriental pearls. The princess, less surprised than she would have been two hours before, knocked two or three times against the wainscot, and said aloud, If hard tasks are set within these walls, miracles likewise are performed. Do not despair, but tell me, I entreat you, your history, and I will return your confidence by informing you of mine. I am a king's daughter, answered the voice and was pronounced beautiful from my birth, at which, however, no fairies were present to assist. You are, I suppose, aware that those capricious beings have an aversion for all that have not been under their protection from the cradle. Alas, I know it all too well, answered Fairer. I am a beauty, like yourself, and the daughter of a king. I am also unfortunate, because I do not owe my beauty to their gifts. We are then true companions in affliction, answered the invisible. But are you in love? It matters not said Farrah to herself. Then she added aloud, Go on with your story, and do not interrupt yourself to ask me questions. I was universally acknowledged to be the fairest creature ever seen, pursued the voice, and I had many friends and suitors. Princes came from far and near, attracted by the renown of my beauty, to demand my hand in marriage. I must tell you that I am called Euranth. Among the numerous pretenders to my hand and heart, one young prince was particularly as studious in his attentions, I returned his affection, and gave him every reason to hope for the fulfillment of his wishes. Our wedding day was fixed, when the fairies, jealous at seeing me so sought after, and about to be so happy, and unable to endure the thoughts of immortals being so, except through themselves, carried me off one day from my father's palace, and conveyed to me my present wretched prison. One of them has visited me today to tell me that I shall be strangled tomorrow morning if by that time I have not executed a ridiculous and impracticable task that they have assigned to me. Now inform me of who you are. I shall have told you nearly all, answered the princess, when I shall have told you my name. I am called Fairer Than a Fairy. Then you are then very, very fair, replied the princess, Euranth. I have a great desire to see you. Then I am equally anxious to see you, too returned fairer is there not a door somewhere about here for i have a little key which may perhaps assist us to satisfy our mutual curiosity looking narrowly about our princess discovered a small keyhole to which she applied the little golden key and succeeded in unlocking the door having pushed it open the two princesses eyes met and each was much surprised by the wonderful beauty of the other when their embraces and congratulations were over Fairer could not forbear laughing to observe that Euranth had been very busily employed in rubbing her acorns with a little white stone, as she had been commanded. She then informed her new friend of the task that had been given to her, and that the most charming person she had ever seen had wrought a miracle in her favor. "'But who could it be?' said Euranth. "'I think it was a young man,' answered Fairer. "'A young man?' cried Euranth. "'Ah, you blush. You are in love with him.' No, not yet, answered our princess, but he told me that he is in love with me, and if he really loves me, as he said he did, he will come to your assistance. Scarcely had Farrah pronounced these words, when the acorns and the bushel began to move, and continued moving without any apparent cause for some time, when they were suddenly changed into large pear-shaped pearls of the first quality, far superior indeed to that of the pearl which Queen Cleopatra dissolved in the cup she presented at the celebrated banquet to Mark Antony. Our two princesses were agreeably surprised by this adventure, and Fairer, who began to grow accustomed to such prodigies, taking Euranth by the hand, they repassed into her ebony closet. 
Fairer immediately resumed her search for the panel mentioned by Piero, which she soon discovered, and applying her little golden key thereto, unlocked it, and pushed open the panel, entered an apartment of which the magnificent surprise affected her, because she recognized in all she saw marks of her lover's thoughtfulness. The floor was strewn with violets and other sweet-smelling flowers, which exhaled the most fragrant perfume, and in the center of this delightful room stood a table, on which was laid out a most sumptuous entertainment, consisting of rare and delicate viands, while in different parts of the table were little fountains of wine and lemonade flowing into basins of green porphyry. The young princesses seated themselves unhastingly in two chairs of ivory, enriched with emeralds, and ate of this noble feast with good appetite. The repast finished, the table disappeared, and was replaced by a most deliciously perfumed bath, in which, having indulged for some time, it vanished, and made way for a superb toilet, a large basket of gold wire, filled with linen so white that it was a luxury to look on it. A bed, curiously shaped but gorgeously furnished, stood at one end of this remarkable apartment, which was bordered by orange trees in full flower, growing in vases set with emeralds and rubies, while columns of cornelian disposed at regular distances supported the golden ceiling, and between each pillar was a splendid crystal mirror, which reached from the cornice to the floor. Princess Euranth, admiring her companion's good fortune, said to her, Your lover is as powerful as he is deeply enamored, and apparently neglects nothing to gratify your wishes. Yours is not common fate. A musical clock, which stood in the room, now sounded midnight, by repeating twelve times the name of Piero. Fairer blushed, threw herself on her bed, and tried to sleep, but her repose was interrupted by the image of her lover. When the morrow came, the court of the queen of the fairies was thrown into the utmost astonishment at beholding the gallery perfectly freed from cobwebs, and at sight of the bushel of pearls, while they found each of the princesses quietly seated in her prison chamber. Having assembled in council to determine what task should next be given to the objects of their hatred, the fairies commanded Euranth to go to the seashore and write on the sand, taking especial care that what she wrote should not be effaced by the waves, while Fairer received orders to go to the foot of the Sugarloaf Mountain, to ascend to its summit, and to bring thence to them a vase filled with the water of immortality. As there was no means of reaching the top of this mountain without flying, they gave the princess feathers and wax, hoping that, like an other Icarus, she would make herself wings, and thereby cause her destruction. Euranth and Fairer sighed on the hearing these commands, and having tenderly embraced, they separated, as sorrowfully as though they were certain they would never see each other again. Euranth was then conducted to the seashore, and Fairer to the foot of Sugarloaf Mountain. Arrived at her destination, Fairer took the feathers and wax, and vainly attempted to construct something with them in the shape of wings, but after a dozen unsuccessful attempts, her thoughts began to wander to Piero. If he really loved me, she said, he would come again to my assistance. The word assistance had scarcely passed her lips when Piero appeared before her, looking a thousand times more handsome than on the preceding night. Daylight was in truth singularly favorable to him. Do you doubt the strength of my passion? said he. Is there anything too difficult for me to perform in token of my love? Piero then requested Fairer to take off her slippers, in which she would not be permitted to approach the fountain of immortality, and suddenly transformed himself into an eagle. The princess could not repress a slight feeling of regret at beholding Piero's charming person so metamorphosed, but the eagle, 
crouching at her feet and unfolding his wings, soon made her comprehend his object. She seated herself on his back, twining her fair arms around his majestic neck, and he gently rose into the air. It would be no easy matter to pronounce which was the most delighted, fairer, at escaping death and executing the cruel order she had received from the fairies, or Pyrrho, at being charged with so precious a burden. The eagle carried the princess gently and safely to the summit of the mountain, where she heard the agreeable concert of a thousand winged songsters who came to do homage to the illustrious bird which had borne her thither. On the very top of Sugarloaf Mountain was a flowery plain, surrounded by groves of tall cedar trees, and from the centre of this plain arose a little rivulet, whose silvery waters meandered over a fine sand composed of gold dust and sea diamonds. Fairer, kneeling on the bank, took some of the precious water in her hand and tasted it. She then filled her vase, and turning toward to her eagle, Ah, said she, how happy should I be could my friend Euranthe drink of this water. The words had scarcely passed her lips when the eagle flew to the foot of the mountain, seized one of Fairer's slippers, and returning with it to the stream, filled it, and flew away to the beach, on whose sands the princess Euranthe was vainly endeavoring to write in indelible characters. His mission fulfilled, the eagle returned to Fairer, who reseated herself on his back, and expressed a wish to join her dear friend. Pierrot, to whom her slightest wish was law, instantly directed his flight toward the beach, where Euranthe was still occupied with her fruitless labor, the waves and facing whatever she wrote as soon as it was completed. What barbarity, said the princess to Fairer, when she saw her, to command me to achieve the impossibility, but I guess from your singular mode of travelling, that you have succeeded in obtaining what was required of you? Fairer, having alighted, and being moved by the sight of her friend's affliction, turned to her lover and said, Show me yet another and more convincing proof of your power. Or rather of my love, interrupted the prince, and without giving his mistress time to finish her request, he resumed his natural shape. When Euranthe saw the beauty of his face, in person, surprise and pleasure sparkled in her eyes, while Fairer blushed, yet by an involuntary movement, turned her face on her lover to conceal her agitation from her friend. Do as I bid you, she said with playful petulance. Pierrot saw that he was loved, and willing to put an end to her anxiety, desired her to read what she would find written on the sand, and disappeared more quickly than a flash of lightning. At the moment of Pierrot's disappearance, a wave rolled to Ferrer's feet, and, then retiring, discovered a brazen tablet as firmly sunk in the sand as though it had been there from the creation of the world, and to all appearance immovable. The princesses regarded it with wonder, and while still looking at it, an invisible hand engraved thereon the deep letters of the following stanzas. Vulgar lovers' oath and vows are like letters traced in sand. The lightest wave that o'er them flows leaves a bare and noteless strand. But the love your charms inspire princess fairer than a fay is graven deep in words of fire on a heart that woos thy sway i understand cried euranthe these lines are addressed to you by your lover oh may his passion be as lasting as it is tenderly expressed the princess then embraced fairer who was quite overcome by the tenderness of her friend's caresses and the confusion she could not but feel at the recollection of her unfounded jealousy but having made a full confession to her friend she soon recovered to indulge in the pleasure of an agreeable and confidential conversation. In the meantime, Queen Dwarfina, having sent to the foot of the Sugarloaf Mountain to inform herself of what had befallen Fairer, 
Her messenger, finding feathers scattered in all directions, and not seeing the princess, brought word to her that Fairer had perished, and that the fairies had succeeded in their object. When they heard this, the fairies hastened to the beach, but shrieked with surprise when they saw that the graven tablet on the sands, and were desperate with malice when they discovered the two princesses amusing themselves under the shade of a rock. Fairer could not help smiling at the astonishment of the fairy queen when she presented to her the water of immortality, which did not appear to be estimated as its value on the occasion. Dorfina, however, was not a person to be laughed at, and although at a no loss to discover that an art as powerful as her own had assisted the princesses, she yet resolved to accomplish their total ruin on the morrow. Euranth was accordingly ordered to go to the fairy land arcade, and there procure the elixir of perpetual youth and beauty, while Fairer was to repair to the forest of marvels and catch the silver-footed hind. Princess Euranth was conducted to an extensive plain, in the midst of which stood a prodigiously high and capacious marble building, the interior of which was divided into halls and arcades, filled with shops in which jewelry, perfumes, and fancy articles of all kinds, and from all parts of the world, were so tastefully set out that no words can convey an idea of their superb effect. Each of these shops was kept by young and lovely fairies, who were assisted in their business by the persons whom they loved best. The moment Euranth entered this gorgeous building, her youth and beauty charmed all the fairies, and she excited the most tender interest when, at the first shop she came to, she asked for the elixir of perpetual youth and beauty. They dared not inform her where it was to be found, as they knew when this precious elixir was demanded that the mortal charged with the dangerous commission was intended for punishment by their queen. At last, Euranth's evil star conducted her to the shop of a wicked fairy, who, directly, our princess asked, in the name of the queen of the fairies, for the elixir of perpetual youth and beauty, answered that she could procure it for her for the next day, at the same time desiring Euranth to step into an adjoining room and rest herself while it was being prepared. No sooner, however, had the unfortunate princess crossed the threshold then the door was closed behind her, and she found herself in a dark and noisome dungeon. Terror seized upon her, and she called in her fear on the amiable lover of fairer than a fairy to assist her ere she perished. Alas, he was either deaf to her voice or unable to comply with her request. In this distress, she tormented herself throughout the night, and it was already morning when she fell into an uneasy slumber. She was shortly awakened by a neatly dressed damsel who brought her some refreshment. The girl informed Euranth that she was sent by her mistress his favorite, who was determined, at all hazards, to assist her, adding that the fairy had sent for an evil genius to enable her to charge Euranth's beauty into ugliness, that she might send her deformed and overwhelmed with disgrace back to the queen of the fairies. Poor Euranth was dreadfully terrified at this communication, convinced that a miracle alone could save her from being deprived of all of her charms, she was walking about her dungeon in the most wretched state of mind, when she felt herself suddenly seized by the arm. Oh, how her heart beat with fear! The hand, however, led her gently to a corner, where a few rays of light penetrated through a small opening, and when Euranth had courage to look up, she was indeed agreeably surprised, for she beheld by her side the prince, her lover, for whom she had been torn away, just as they fixed upon their wedding day. "'And is it really you?' she cried repeatedly until at last, convinced of her lover's identity, and mindful of her present misery, she said, But are you the favorite of the malicious fairy? And do I behold you with the claim of that fine title? 
Doubt it not, answered her lover. It is to that favor that we shall owe the termination of our misfortunes. The prince then related to Euranthe that, in despair at her loss, he had consulted a hermit as to where she then was, that the old man had told him that when he next saw her it would be in fairyland, and had given him the means of finding her. He was, however, stopped in his search by the malicious old fairy, who had conceived a passion for him. In pursuance of my adviser's instructions, continued the prince, I did not entirely repulse her, and, by my duplicity, I gained a complete ascendancy over her mind, became the master of her treasures, and the minister of her will. My ancient inamorata has just set out on a journey of eighteen thousand miles, and will not return for a fortnight. We must make the best use of this opportunity for effecting our escape. I know where the fairy keeps her invisible ring, and will go and fetch it. You shall put it on, and will thus be able to quit our dungeon unperceived. I can leave the arcade openly. Do not forget, said Euranthe, the elixir of perpetual youth and beauty. I would drink of it myself, and give some to a dear friend of mine. The prince laughed. And where shall we go? asked Euranthe. To the queen of the fairies, replied her lover. No, not there, said the princess. We shall be put to death. The sage who protects me, pursued he, counsels me to conduct you to the place whence you were brought, if I would ensure my happiness, and he has never yet deceived me. Be it so, said Euranthe. Let us depart immediately. Orontes, so was Euranthe's lover called, handed to his mistress a china flagon, which contained the elixir of perpetual youth and beauty. Anxious to appear more lovely in the prince's eyes, she drank deeply of it, forgetting that the ring which she wore on her finger rendered her invisible. Then, taking Orontes's arm and carrying the flagon in her hand, she traversed thus the whole of the arcade and reached the fairy queen's palace with her lover. Arrived there, Euryanth pulled off the invisible ring and gave it to Orontes. Then the lovely princess became visible to her lover, who, to her great regret, made himself invisible in his turn by putting on the ring, and they then entered Dorfina's palace. The fairies looked at each other in the utmost astonishment when they beheld Euranthe enter with a flagon of elixir. Dorfina, lowering her brow, said, Let the insolent be put into close confinement. I see that our stratagems produce no effect, and she must be put to death without any further trouble. Euranthe trembled violently when she heard this cruel speech, but Orontes, who was still by her side, bade her be of good cheer. We will now turn to fairer than a fairy, who was conducted to the forest of marvels, and state why she was commanded to take the silver-footed hind, and what was her success. There had been formerly a queen of the fairies who had attained justly that noble distinction. She was fair, amiable, and learned, and had many lovers, whose attentions, however, were thrown away upon her. Occupied, as she ever was in protecting virtue, she could not find time for listening to the sighs of her admirers. Of her numerous suitors, there was one whom her indifference rendered peculiarly miserable, and it will naturally be inferred that he was the one who was most ardent in his passion for the queen. One day, his entreaties being still unable to move her, he protested in his despair that he would kill himself. To this threat she paid no attention, regarding it as the mere bombast so frequently employed by lovers and their threats to their mistresses end of which they are far from ever intending to fulfill. However, she was informed shortly after that he had thrown himself into the sea. An old hermit, under whose care the unfortunate youth had been educated, and who was deeply skilled in magic, obtained of the celestial influences 
which have power over fairies and over men, that the chaste queen should pass the next hundred years of her life under the form of a hind, as an expiation of her cruelty, and that she could only be redeemed from this form by an elegant and beautiful young lady, who, exposing herself for six days in the forest of marvels, and chase of her, should, having caught her, be willing to restore her natural shape. Shortly after her metamorphosis, several princesses had risked their beautiful persons in the forest, attracted by an adventure which seemed to promise so much glory. Each, of course, fancied at starting that she was destined to be the most successful huntress, but each was successfully lost in the intricacies of the thicket, and heard of no more, so that after a time the ardor of ladies in pursuit of the hind cooled, and she was hunted only by persons whom the fairies condemned to the task with a certainty that it would terminate in their destruction. It was accordingly to rid themselves of fairer that the fairies sent her to the forest of marvels. A little food in a basket was given to her for form's sake, and a silken halter was put in her hand to throw over the hind's neck. Behold her, then, equipped for her hunting expedition in the forest, forty years after the metamorphosis of the fairy queen. Fairer, left to herself, put her little basket of provisions at the foot of a tree, and looked sorrowfully around her. In whichever direction she turned, the vast forest slept, in profound silence, and not an object but trees, turf, and sky presented itself in her sight. She was determined to remain on the border of the forest, and not to attempt to penetrate its depths. With this view, she resolved to take an exact survey of the immediate neighborhood on the spot on which she then stood. But alas, in that forest it was impossible to move a step without losing her way, and when she attempted to return to the tree, she was completely at fault. Suddenly, she found herself within a short distance of the silver-footed hind, who was walking leisurely up an avenue. Faber immediately ran toward it with her halter in hand, to catch it at once, but the hind darted off, stopping from time to time, and turning round, to contemplate her pursuer. The princess continued to chase the hind in this manner, the whole of the first day, until night set in and hid it from her sight. The poor huntress then found herself both weary and hungry, but she was unable to find the place where she had left her little basket of food, and as for repose, she could not expect much of that on the hard ground. She stretched herself despairingly under a spreading tree, but scarcely closed her eyes, the least noise, even a leaf falling into the ground, making her shudder with fear. In this miserable condition, her thoughts naturally wandered to her lover, upon whom she called many times, and when she found that he came not to her in this great emergency, Alas, she said, Piero, Piero, and have you abandoned me? Her tears began to flow, and she had nearly cried herself to sleep when she felt something move under her, and the ground now felt so soft that she could have fancied she was lying on the finest bed in the world. She was awakened in the morning from a long and untroubled sleep by an agreeable concert of innumerable nightingales, when, looking round her, she observed that the grass all about where she was lying had grown in the night, so as to have become a most delightfully verdant couch. A large orange tree spread its branches over her, forming a kind of canopy to her bed, which was strewed with its blossoms. Two turtle doves, cooing in a bush hard by, reminded Fairer of her Pyro's affection. Strawberries and various other kinds of excellent fruit were growing in profusion near her couch, of which the princess ate heartily, and felt as refreshed as if she had partaken of the choicest viands. 
when she had satisfied her appetite. Oh, attentive Pyrrho, she exclaimed, but for your timely assistance I must have perished. I no longer murmur at my hard fate, and only wish to see you to make me quite contented. Fairer would have continued her soliloquy, but at the moment she observed the silver-footed hand resting on its haunches and quietly watching her. She made sure of it taking its time, and having gathered a handful of grass, offered it to the hind, holding her silken halter in the other hand, but the hind skipped onward, and when it had run a little distance from the princess resumed its sitting posture, and gazed earnestly on its fair pursuer. The princess passed the whole of the second day, and fruitless attempts to catch it, and when night set in, passed it as she had passed in the preceding. On the third morning, she was awakened as before, and the following days and nights were spent in the same way. At last, on the fifth morning, when Farrah opened her eyes, she fancied it was lighter than usual, and, on looking up, perceived her lover his eyes sparkling with all the love she inspired. He was kneeling near her and kissing her feet. Pleased by his presence and gratified by his respectful attention, "'You are come, then, at last,' said Farrah, "'but though I have not seen you latterly, "'I have, at least, experienced marks of her goodness.' "'Say rather of my love, fairer than a fairy,' interrupted Piero. "'My mother suspects I assist you, and has placed me in confinement, "'from which I have only escaped for a few moments "'by the assistance of the kind fairy and my friend. "'I have only time to assure you of my eternal fidelity, "'and to add that you will see me again this evening. "'If fortune favors us tomorrow, we shall be happy. Adieu.' Piero disappeared, and the silver-footed hind appeared. "'The princess went in chase of it.' When the fifth night came, she perceived, very near to her, a small bright flame, which sufficed to discover her lover. "'Here is my fiery wand,' said he. "'Place it before you, and follow, unhesitatingly, wherever it shall lead you. "'When it stops, you will discover, by its light, a heap of dry leaves. "'Set fire to the leaves, and fearlessly enter the opening you will then perceive. "'If you there find the skin of an animal, which you recognize, burn it.' The stars, our friends, will take care of the rest. Adieu. Fairer would have been glad to receive more ample instructions, but her lover was gone. So she unhesitatingly placed the wand before her, and followed where it led. It went on before her for more than two hours, and she began to grow very tired. When it stopped, and by its light, Fairer perceived the heap of dry leaves, to which she immediately set light. The leaves instantly threw up a bright blaze, and discovered a high mountain with an opening toward its base, nearly concealed by brambles. The princess pushed them aside with her wand, and entered the mouth of the opening. She found herself in total darkness, but, walking forward, presently came to a large and noble hall, handsomely furnished and brilliantly lighted with many chandeliers. But what struck her with most astonishment was to perceive the skins of several wild beasts, suspended from golden hooks, which she took at first for the beasts themselves. She gazed on them for some time with fear, when, averting her eyes, she perceived in the middle of the hall a fine tall palm tree, from a branch of which was hanging the skin of the silver-footed hind. Fairer was delighted at the sight. She took the skin on the end of her wand and carried it to the fire she had lighted at the mouth of the grotto. The flames immediately consumed it, and the princess returned joyfully to the hall and penetrated into a long suit of magnificent apartments. She stepped into one, in which she saw several little beds arranged on the Persian carpet, one of them being of richer materials than the others, 
and placed under a pavilion of cloth of gold. But she had no time to reflect on the singularity of what she saw, for she suddenly heard loud peals of laughter, and a confused and loud noise of several voices. Fairer, turning her steps in the direction of these sounds, entered into a wonderful apartment, in which were seated fifteen young persons of divine beauty. They rose at her entrance, apparently as much surprised at the appearance of the princess as was she at beholding them. The extreme loveliness of her person, too, charmed them all. In attentive silence, having succeeded the cries of admiration which burst from them at first, one of the fair fifteen, more beautiful than her companions, advanced with a gay and smiling countenance to meet our charming princess. I cannot doubt, she said, that you are my deliverer, as no one ever enters here who is not clothed in the skin of an animal such as you saw suspended in the hall. It has been the fate of all the lovely persons you see around me. After ten days unsuccessfully spent in hunting me, they have all been changed into animals like myself, excepting that during the night we all resume our natural shapes. You, fair princess, but that you were destined to effect my deliverance, would have been transformed into a white rabbit. A white rabbit? cried Fairer. Oh, madame, I am very happy to have preserved my former form, and to have dischanted so charming a person as you appear to be. Yes, you have restored us all to liberty, answered the fairy. Let us pass the remainder of this night together, and tomorrow you will repair to my palace to fill all the court with joy and astonishment. No pen could do justice to the gaiety of which that charming abode was on that night, the witness, or to the ecstasies of the fair inmates about to be restored to life, so to speak. They were all of them the same age as on the day they commenced their hunting expedition in the Forest of Marvels, and the eldest of them was not yet twenty. When the queen was inclined to repose, she invited Fairer to share her bed, and expressed a wish to know her history. The princess related it so affectingly, yet in such artless and truthful expressions, that the fairy resolved from that moment to take her under her protection, and to crown her and her faithful Pierrot's affection with lasting happiness. Fairer did not forget her friend Euranthe, for whom the fairy conceived an almost equal affection. After a lengthy conversation which they frequently interrupted by assurances of eternal friendship, the fairy and the princess fell into profound sleep. The next day they all set out for the palace, intending agreeably to surprise the fairies. They quitted without regret the forest of marvels, and in due time reached their destination. As they approached the outer court, their ears were saluted by an agreeable concert, which seemed to proceed from the full and skilful military band. When they entered the quadrangle, it was crowded by an immense concourse of people. We come in the very nick of time, said the fairy. This must be some holiday. Let us see what is doing. The fairy cleared the passage through the throng and passed on with her troop. Directly she was recognized, loud shouts rent the air, and great was the universal joy at her return. But continuing to move onward, a strange sight met her eyes. A young maiden, more charming than the grass, and as beautiful as Venus, was tied to a stake, and was apparently about to be burned. Fairer immediately recognized her friend Euranth. She uttered a piercing shriek, but her terror and surprise even redoubled when in that moment her friend vanished, and in her place appeared a young man, so handsome that he immediately attracted the looks of all present. Fairer rushed to the spot where the youth was bound, threw herself on his neck, and bursting into tears, exclaimed, It is my brother, it is my brother! 
It was so indeed her brother, who was also the favoured lover of Euranth, and who, fearing that she would be put to death, had given her the invisible ring to enable her to escape from the fate which the cruel Dorfina had prepared for her. The brother and sister embraced again and again, and their affectionate caresses were shared by the invisible Euranth, whose voice was audible while her person could not be seen. In the meanwhile, the fairies present, astonished beyond measure at these extraordinary events, manifested the utmost joy at the return of their good queen, and throwing themselves at her feet, kissed her hands and the border of her robe. Some became speechless with astonishment, some wept for joy, while others laughed hysterically. The wicked fairies, or partisans of Dwarfina, also affected to welcome her return with eagerness, and their policy gave an air of sincerity to their false demonstrations. Dorfina herself, furious at her virtuous predecessor's return, concealed her real feelings with an art of which she alone was capable. She at once professed her readiness to abdicate in favor of her rightful queen, who, with a grave and majestic air, demanded in what way the young lady she had just seen had merited the punishment about to have been inflicted, and how long it had become customary to solemnize a cruel death by feats and rejoicings. Dorfina made a very clumsy excuse, to which the queen was impatiently listening, when Orontes interrupted her, saying, May it please your majesty, the princess was about to be punished for being so lovely. The princess, my sister, has likewise suffered much for the same cause. Behold both the culprits, and judge how guilty they are from their looks. Then Orontes requested Euranth to pull off her ring, which done, she immediately became visible her beauty charming all beholders. They are, as you see, beautiful, pursued Orontes, and they are also possessed of a thousand amiable qualities which they do not derive from the fairies. These are their only crimes, for these have they been so cruelly persecuted. Then, turning toward Dorfina, Orontes added, How unjust have you been, madame, to abuse with a tyrannical power all beauty and virtue which do not emanate from yourself. The prince was silent. The queen turned to the assembly with a lively air and said, I demand the guardianship of these three persons, for I feel inclined to make them happy. I am under the deepest obligations to Fairer, and I am sure you will allow that queen of the fairy should never prove ungrateful. You shall still reign, madame, pursued the queen, turning toward Dufina. This empire is large enough for both of us. To you belongs the sovereignty of the islands in which you were born, and your right shall be never be questioned by me. Believe with me, your son, who is a party in my plan of happiness for these mortals, and whom I destined to marry fairer than a fairy. This union will reconcile us all. Dorfina was provoked by the queen's commands, but what could she do? She was a weaker party, and had only to obey. She was consenting to this proposition with a very bad grace, when the handsome Piero made his appearance, followed by a crowd of noble youths who composed his court. He had come to pay his respects to the queen, and to congratulate her on her return, but perceiving Fairer, as he passed along, he showed by his tender looks that his first homage was paid to her. The queen, embracing Piero, presented him to Fairer than a fairy, entreating her to receive him from her hands. The prince's transports may be more easily imagined than described. Fairer, in her joy, did not forget her parents or the good governess from whose care she had been snatched by the wiles of the artful Dwarfina. She expressed a wish, therefore, that they might approve of her choice and be present at her wedding, 
In a moment the queen transported the four lovers, herself and the court, to the castle, where they found the king and queen still in the deepest distress at the supposed loss of their favorite daughter and of Arantes, who had left them in search of his sister. Delighted at beholding their children once more, they were scarcely less so at perceiving them accompanied by persons so worthy of their choice as Euranth and Pyrrho, and immediately consented to their union, thanking the queen of the fairies for her favor and protection. The two marriages were solemnized on one day, and they were so happy in their results that it had been said that Pyrrho and Fairer, Orontes and Euranth, are the only two couples who ever really deserved the title of the happy, and that those who have been since cited as having gained it led the lives of dogs and cats in comparison. End of chapter 4